You're listening to Someday List, a podcast by To-Do. Every month, we're sitting down with some of our favorite creatives, founders, and entrepreneurs to talk about what they're doing, how they got there, and what they want to tackle next. I'm your host, Evan Lian, and today I'm talking to Irving Ruan, a TV writer, fellow at Warner Media, and contributor for The New Yorker. After spending his early career as a software engineer, consultant, and even startup founder, Irving began pursuing comedy and writing in his spare time. We talk about changing career paths, telling stories that engage the head and heart, and his experience working in his first writer's room on the upcoming series, Twisted Metal. Before we get started, if you're looking for an easy way to get organized, look no further. To-Do is a thoughtfully constrained, minimalist to-do list app that is as simple as paper. Because we believe that simple stays organized. To-Do helps you focus on the things you need to get done so you have more time for the things that matter. Start your 30-day free trial at todo.com or download the free mobile app. On to the interview. All right, welcome back to the Someday List podcast. I'm your host, Evan Lean, and today I'm talking to Irving Ruan, a TV writer and contributor to The New Yorker who comes from the world of tech. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me, Evan. I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing well. So on this podcast, I like to spend roughly as much time talking about the before as I do about the present. I was reading your bio on your website. You were born in China, grew up in Montana, and then California. You mentioned all these in the bio. What is it about these three very different environments that you think shaped your comedic sensibilities? I feel like for me, you know, as an immigrant, I think one of the things that stands out is observing things from the outside. Growing up is for me at least, took a while to acclimate to American culture. So just being on the periphery sort of has this outsider point of view. And I think so much of comedy really is looking at things from an outsider's perspective, um, not quite belonging to really any group. So because of that, it gives like a certain vantage point or at least a certain perspective that you know, you're not quite belonging to A, nor are you quite belonging to B. You're just existing between modalities. And that's why I find at least moving around a ton, being from a different country, growing up in, you know, a state that really not many people live there in Montana and then coming to California um, mm. was really helpful in really constructing just like, just seeing things from the outside. Because I, you know, I didn't quite belong to a particular place for that long. You went on to study computer science at UCSD and then had a whole career as a software engineer. Yeah, going into computer science was one of the most fortunate things, but also something I didn't really expect. Like my parents, you know, they come from STEM world. And, and so it felt natural to go into an area of study that I think my, I know that my family has done. But I felt like at the end of the day, uh, it may have not been like the thing that I should have done lifelong, but I didn't know that, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm. But yeah, I think going into box, like I was doing a start of my own at a certain point. I was, I joined another startup straight out of school. So I felt like just doing software engineering work was really my bread and butter. And then my time at box was actually really cool because I went into there as one of the engineering team members. And then later on, once I realized that I wanted to do more customer facing stuff, I started doing more of the consulting work. So this is where I started talking to a lot of Box's clients and customers. And that allowed me to marry some of my engineering background with some work actually dealing with people and understanding their problems and helping them solve it. So it was really the best of both worlds. And it was around that time when I had started doing consulting and when I was really dipping my toes in the world of like comedy and writing. And, and you know, I think so much of that work right, is based on 
trying to understand people, whether the silly things, the stupid things or whatever. And I felt like going into consulting, whether I planned or not, I don't think I realized at the time, but it just really coincided at a time where like, I would just be working with people all the time in my day job. And then when I was doing my writing and comedy on the side, I was like, oh, like that's also very much like people related sort of thing. I mean, it was really fun, but yeah, it was one of those things where I really didn't plan on it and it just sort of all happened. You mentioned uh, computer science being a practical choice, maybe not being the right fit for you. Can I ask what kind of student were you growing up? Were you involved in, in sports or any extracurriculars like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd done a lot of the uh, <laughs> nerdy activities. I, I, I <laughs> you know, played competitive chess. Did a speech and debate, you know, did quiz bowl, uh, decathlon, whatever I think people are calling it nowadays, science Olympiad, math Olympiad. I mean, you pretty much, I mean, you go across the whole checklist of like all the things that a good Asian <laughs> student should do. I think I did it. Um, but I think it was one of those things where like, I'm not sure if I really particularly had a passion for a lot of those things. I think that was mm-hmm. what I expected the oxygen to be. And I just sort of inhaled mm-hmm. it. But at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, I done some sports. Like I did high school wrestling. I, I played soccer when I was a kid, but like nothing too serious. But yeah, I think mm. at the end of the day, if I, you asked a good question and it just makes me remember how like, while I just did a lot of the standard academic stuff, my fondest memories were like spending every weekend at a Barnes and Noble or at a library just mm. reading. I guess I should have listened to my heart back then to know that storytelling was really what I loved, but yeah, I didn't really have the foresight to, to plan that. What sort of stuff was piquing your interest back then? What were you reading? What were you watching on TV? What were you interested by back then? Yeah, I mean, I think I was interested in stories that helped me honestly feel less alone as like an immigrant, as an outsider. I, I think I was really drawn to like The Simpsons, SNL, and particularly the comedy of Late Night with Conan O'Brien. I just felt like watching him as a kid, you know, he was such a weird character. He still is. You know, he plays this persona <laughs> that is like, so. you know, for anyone who knows his style of comedy, like it's very wacky, but it's sincere and it's different. And I felt like that made me feel seen as a bit of a sort of a weirdo in that way. And that was cool to, to see that. And I think for books, you know, a lot of it was like really about like, love the X-Men growing up. I think X-Men is such a great thematic work of immigrants and marginalized communities, like mutants who are pushed away, pushed to the boundaries of society. Uh, love Lord of the Rings, huge Tolkien fan mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I mean, I was reading tons of Star Wars, pretty much any sci-fi fantasy world building stuff, because I think a lot of those stories, what was central to them, at least to me, was these really misunderstood, uh, misfit characters trying to find their place and belonging in a world that sometimes is hostile to them. So I think those types of stories, regardless of genre, sci-fi, fantasy, whatever, like those are the stories I think I, I was really drawn to. You'd mentioned uh, earlier that you had worked in a startup. You co-founded it, correct? That's correct, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about Erlen? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea was really born out of this problem we identified, which is that there are a lot of people with a lot of these like paper photographs, and there just wasn't a good tool out there to digitize them and bring them really to the cloud. And this was back in 2013, so way before a lot of the modern technologies, I think, that we have on a lot of these smartphones. And I... I basically was approached by this coworker I, I used to work with and him and his brother. And it was one of those things where like the stars really aligned and we decided to all work together. And we started creating this app on the iPhone that allowed you to take a picture really of a paper photograph and just automatically crop its edges, did like healing and digital correction and all of that. Looking back on it, it was kind of crazy just how much we worked in the short amount of time span that we had. And we got it out and we had an Android version and we got a lot of users, but I think at the end of the day, it was just one of those things that we just didn't, we just couldn't quite hit the growth rate that I think a lot of 
venture capitalists were looking for. So um, at the end of the day, we you know we decided to sunset it. But it was one of those things where I look back on it uh, with fond memories. I learned so much. I grew a lot. And it was like one of those things where like just moving to Silicon Valley, getting to do a startup, it was like super cool. So I look back on it with really fond memories. As you're progressing in your career, is that realization becoming more poignant in your life that maybe this isn't the right fit for you? How did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think aging and being less stupid, maybe. Uh, just kinda, <laughs> <That> <laughs> a little helps, bit out yeah. of it. I mean, perhaps a little bit of whatever little wisdom I've accrued in my 20s, if you could even call it that. I think at the end of the day, it, it just really came down to just being honest with myself, right? I think mm-hmm. it just came down to what was important to me. And it was at a time when, you know, in my 20s, and certainly as, as I approached my 30s, I was really starting to question like, what it is that I wanted to do. And, and I think I could always do engineering. It was like really intellectually fun and challenging. So nothing against that. But I think it was really just remembering like, what brought out the inner child in me. And, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, it's the stories that made me feel less alone as a kid that, you know, I really wanted to focus uh, a lot of my work into that I didn't know if engineering could scratch that. The way I've always captured it is I think engineering allowed me to use 100% of my brain, but writing and storytelling is 100% of my brain and my heart. And I, and I felt that was worth devoting my life to at the end of the day while I uh, still had some intelligence left in me before I hit the old age of 35. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I decided to pursue that. When you look back on your career as a software engineer, your career in tech, I mean, it sounds like you look back on it finally. Is there a highlight that stands above the rest of them? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel doing that startup was definitely a highlight for me. I think I really grew a lot. I met some really great people. And that was a huge, huge point in my life. Professionally and personally, it was really challenging. And I think ultimately, I came up as a better person for it. Mm -hmm. So definitely that. I think project-wise, there was this one project I did at Box early on, which I was a lead on. And that was really challenging, but I got to work with a ton of different teams and got to be like the technical point person. And so that was cool to be part of a much larger organization and actually be able to see cross-functionally where I can slate in and how I can help and how I can support others. So launching that project from really inception to the launch, to post-launch across all these different teams and being a liaison on the engineering side, I was really proud of that moment and I got to make, I made a lot of really good friends to that project. So I would say probably those two things come out, at least in the world of tech. At what point did you pick up writing and comedy as even a hobby? It's hard to quite remember. I think it when I was like 27, 28. Uh, so a few years ago, I was going through a rough patch just personally in my life at the time. And I remember I was on the phone with a friend. She was working at the time to train as a life coach and she wanted to do a practice around with me. I'm like, yeah, sure. And so she asked me a question and she said, Irving, what would you hope your friends and family would say about your funeral? And I was just like so caught off guard by that question because it just felt so existential. Mm-hmm. But, and then she could just tell, like I was thinking about it. It's like, no, don't think about it. Just say the first thing that comes to your heart. And I said, uh, to hopefully make people feel less alone to make them laugh and smile. And I think it was really after that moment when I realized, well, maybe I should start investing some energy into that if that actually is important to me. So it was really around, I think, in my late 20s when I made the transition. So while I was working my day job, I would try to write sometimes in the morning, uh, I tried to write or perform in the evenings, and that's how that ball started rolling. 
Paste Magazine has named you one of the, the best humorists writing today. You've been featured uh, in the New Yorker's Best Shouts and Murmurs for three consecutive years. Did it ever get frustrating? All this creative success, but like you're still having to, to work the day job. What was that time yeah. like for you? Uh, I mean, it was definitely challenging. I think my, my impression of the, the question for me is at least it was hard to maintain energy in both worlds, right? I think mm-hmm. I never felt... I guess the need to like bring my personal life into work, although it was fun sometimes if I could like make use of that. But at the end of the day, I think I'd always try to keep the two separate. And I think that was okay. I think where it started getting difficult was when I wanted to start doing new projects, comedy wise or storytelling wise, that I think just started taking up a lot of time that it was becoming increasingly harder to try to maintain my energy in both. I think that was that was when the struggle began. Was like just trying to focus, and my day job was getting a lot busier, and just wanting to take up more projects in my personal life, and trying to maintain family and friends and all of that. As you know, right, it's it's difficult. So I think that was where it was becoming difficult. Was when my responsibilities, I think, started increasing. And I think one Mm -hmm. of those worlds was my own choosing. Like I don't have to do that, but I think just with what I was becoming more interested in and where I wanted to challenge myself, that that was where the struggle started coming in. I feel like sometimes when you start down a path of working at a creative discipline or any discipline, really, you have to operate from this place of not delusion, but like uh, a little bit of blind faith that things will work Mm -hmm. out. And it sounds like you had a pretty devoted mindset from the beginning after that conversation with your friend. Did that confidence ever falter? Did it take time to build up at all? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't say I'm even confident right now, to be honest with you. I'm like, I think <laughs> the whole thing, it's so true because I, I think the struggling of it is what makes it, I don't know if it's like masochistic in any way, but I think that the struggle and how hard it was made me grow. Right. And I think, you know, I think as with anybody who is working in this field in the arts, as you know, like it's just rejection after rejection. So mm-hmm. I don't think it ever gets any easier I remember what kept me going, to be perfectly honest with you, like despite rejection, despite not feeling like anything is ever working out, was it went back to that conversation. Like, why did I start doing this? And I don't know if, you know, depending on what you believe in, a higher power, spirituality, whatever it may be, that was sort of my higher power at the time, was just knowing why I was doing it. It wasn't so much for me per se, but hopefully the type of feeling I would like to give back in the things that I was creating, right? In the same way that the stories I grew up with gave me that feeling as a gift. So that was what kept me going despite how hard it was. And I think right now, I don't know if I, I will say I'm more confident. I think, I guess I'm just more aware of at least a bit more of what works and what doesn't work. So maybe there is some of that wisdom, but I think my confidence still falters on a daily basis, knowing that like, oh, this isn't working, but at least I feel how I rebound emotionally from it is a lot faster than three years ago where, I don't know, I've been licking my wounds for like three months. Now it's, I don't know, like two months. I'm just kidding. It's like much less, right? So I think that's where I think the confidence, you know, it's put in quotes, um, has probably grown, but I I can't say like I'm fully confident now for sure. Mm -hmm. When you make up your mind that you're going to devote your life to this mission, what are the first exploratory steps you take to start dabbling in comedy and writing? Yeah, it was really just doing it. I think. I think I didn't. I didn't go to grad school or get an MFA. I, you know, I didn't do my undergrad in creative writing. So I think in the beginning, I always felt like really behind because I didn't have a formal education, and in some ways, I felt very lacking. 
to be perfectly honest. And so I, I felt that the best way for me was just to just to do it. it was just to write, just to submit, to get out there and perform, whether it's stand up or improv or anything like that. And I just felt like where it helped coming from a tech background was so much of it is like this hacker mentality, which is like, you know, you have a laptop, you have 48 hours, it's a hackathon, you have all the tools from the world, put something together and see what you can do within like 40 hours. And I felt I wanted to take that hacker mentality from technology into this world where it's like, you know, just crash and burn. But more times I can crash and burn and repeat that throughput, I'll be failing a ton, but at least I'm going to get that feedback over and over super fast. So that was the mentality I took. I don't know if it's the best, but it was what I knew. And I felt like, at least for me, it allowed me to learn hopefully quickly what I was missing and and so forth. So I felt that was like something useful I took from my days in technology into the exploratory steps, at least in the world of writing. Right now you are staffed on a NBC Peacock show, but I also want, want to ask you about this Warner Media Fellowship. Can you tell me a little bit about this program you're a part of? Yeah, yeah. So, um... I don't know how much people know about, I guess, the world of show business or the business of show, um, but uh, we should definitely scratch that from the corner. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think for, at least for writers, there are these basically these fellowships that a lot of these big studios push out to help with their equity and inclusion and, and diversity programs. And uh, this one that I got into, it was formerly the HBO and then it got rebranded as the Warner Media, just due to the whole like corporate reshuffle and so forth. But it's basically a nine-month-long program where you send in two original pilots and essentially like a college application, an essay, all of that. And they review it, and then you get interviewed. And if you're a good fit, then they bring you on. And basically, these programs are designed to bring in underrepresented voices from different backgrounds that otherwise Hollywood wouldn't see Mm -hmm. um, and to push them through the pipeline. So in this program, I think they're like 21, 22 writers, many of whom have become my close friends. And... Through this program, we basically get masterclasses from different Hollywood executives, showrunners, people in production telling us, this is how making TV works. Here's what to expect in a writer's room. And also in the program, we got to develop a completely new pilot under the guidance of the Warner Media program. So that was really cool. But yeah, it was really just a boot camp, like a nine-month-long boot camp. This is what it's like to uh, work in Hollywood as a TV writer. We're going to try to get you set up with a job and mentorship and all of that. And we're essentially, we're part of the Warner Media family now. So it's cool. Like even though the program has technically ended, you know, we're still much in, very much in touch and they're keeping tabs on us and they're helping us. They're sending us out into meetings. So it, it's been good. I feel like it's a good program and I highly recommend these programs if people actually do want to get into writing, at least in the world of entertainment. This interview is brought to you by To Do. You're juggling a lot and you don't know where to start. We've all been there. And that's why we made To Do with the core belief that less is more. To Do is the minimalist to-do list app to ease your cognitive burdens. We are the most refreshing task manager in a sea of monster energy drinks. No pings, no feeds, no comments, just you and the things you need to get done in a simple, intuitive interface. Use code SOMEDAYLIST for 20% off when you subscribe at teuxdeux.com. Back to the interview. Starting a program like that, how do you conquer the nerves of making this monumental shift in your not only your personal life but your career as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I still don't. <laughs> I think um, if there's anything I learned about this new world of Hollywood and the TV film industry is that I don't think really anyone knows what they're doing. And I think talking to people here, most people admit that. And I think you know, to answer your question, I definitely have nerves. I think I still have nerves every day. I think. 
I have never felt more uncertain in my career than I do now, but I have never felt more fulfilled. And I think dealing with those polarities and the emotion, it, it, it's hard and it definitely frays the nerves, if not in a big way, but certainly on a microwave day by day. And I think that's what makes it challenging. As to the program itself, I mean, I definitely was incredibly excited, but also very nervous. Just being in the company of a ton of talented writers that I didn't think I even belonged to, you know, the whole imposter syndrome, right? And I just remember one of my favorite tweets from Karen Chi, I think she's like, <laughs> she had joked how the way she conquers imposter syndrome is like, what if she's just like genuinely bad? And I think I went into that <laughs> first day thinking like, oh, maybe having imposter syndrome is super unhealthy. So what if I'm just like genuinely bad? Maybe that's okay. Like I'm here to grow. <laughs> and I think that helped reframe it. It's like, okay, I'm starting out uh -huh. from the bottom of the bottom. Let's see where I can go from there. And just like maintaining that humility and knowing that I have so much to learn was really helpful. Mm, that's a hurdle anyone can use help learning to get over is just being okay with being bad. You know, ideas have the luxury of being perfect in your head, but you really don't get better until you put out the bad output, vet those ideas and improve them out. I really love that mentality of just maybe I'm just bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think what you're saying is like it has such a such a kernel of truth to it because I don't know about you, but like growing up, I just always felt at least in a lot of the Asian American community, I think at least in the uh, in the areas where you know they have access to more upperly mobile educational opportunities. I'm not speaking mm -hmm. on every single class diaspora of the Asian American uh, community here, but at least in the areas where that access is more immediate, I felt at least there was this expectation and this pressure to always be perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. Not perfect in the sense of like capital P perfect, but at least like everything has to be buttoned up. Everything has to yep. be good. And I think in academics where there is like a clear, you have an input and you have an output, like in computer science, like it's defined. You success in traditional fields, right? Consulting, banking, technology, that's defined much more concretely. But in the world of art, as, as you and I perfectly know, there isn't a lot of that. And especially like I, the way you captured it was so well put, which is, Ideas have the luxury of being perfect in their head. And I think in the world of art, we can't live in that luxury because then it wouldn't exist. And so we just have to face the utter catastrophe and the humiliation of putting our stuff out <laughs> because it is really humiliating. I honestly think yeah. to make art is an incredibly humiliating experience. But I think just on the other side of humiliation is this sense of exaltation, if not for others, but at least for yourself, to know that you try to do something and you try mm -hmm. to express yourself. And that in of itself, like this sounds sappy and a Hallmark card, but that can be a, an incredible reward. But it's really hard because it's humiliating. And I think, you know, what I was saying earlier about the whole hacker mentality, like, I think I was like, okay, how do I keep on humiliating myself as much as possible so I can get over those nerves? I can get over that sort of fear, not completely solved, but uh, definitely a, a bit more immune to it. We've talked a little bit about coming from that sort of immigrant background, which, which I share. I'm curious, how did that conversation with your parents go? Like, hey, mom and dad, I've, I have a very successful career in tech, but. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, um, it was, it was a tough conversation to be perfectly frank. My parents, they're, they're the smartest people I know. My mom's a scientist, my dad's an engineer. So they came about in that time in the China to America immigration diaspora where like, China, you know, was able to open up its borders, the, you know, and America opened up its borders and just they had that cross-pollination. Um, so they're incredibly hardworking and they're incredibly smart. And I think for them, I think Ocean Vong had put it really well. He had remarked how the whole phrase of Tiger Mother is, it's incomplete 
it doesn't capture everything, but he said that being a tiger mother really is just an unskillful expression of love. And I felt that in many ways, that unskillful expression of love was really born out of a context of trauma. And I think looking at my parents' life, I know, you know, they showered me with love, but I think for them growing up in the cultural revolution, uh, mm -hmm. dealing with uncertainty, dealing with famine, dealing with political corruption and abuse, that, that really, I think, scarred them. So like going into the arts as a Chinese person in China, it was essentially self-sentencing yourself to imprisonment or death, right? Like to be an artist or an intellectual in China, you know, as I'm sure you know, you would get imprisoned. So for their son to go into this in America, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't want to presume, but I, I, I wonder sometimes if that was probably triggering or something. Mm -hmm. And especially writing, where I think for people like us to at least try to speak truth to power, I think it was hard for them to initially accept. And I think mm -hmm. for them to wonder, why is he throwing away, you know, so many years of investment into, you know, arguably a very stable career for them. So it was very tough. But I think mm -hmm. for them to see, they thought it was just a hobby where I felt it was really near and dear to me. And for them to see when I got into the Warner Media Fellowship, I think that was when things started changing in their mind. We're like, oh, he's... He's actually taking this seriously. And I think they saw that I may have had a shot. So that was really helpful. And when I did get my first job working on Twisted Metal in the writer's room, I think that was when they were like, oh, okay, he's, <laughs> for a lot of Asian parents, like, oh, he's going to make money from this? Okay, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll accept it. <laughs> but like, you know, um, it, was, it took a long, long time, right? Mm -hmm. Like it took a long, long time for them to really come around to it. And, and that was emotionally hard for me because i think I, I obviously i think like any kid they want their parents to accept what they do but i understood where they came from because of the context and the history that they were born into i do want to talk about what you are working on next you mentioned it briefly twisted metal can you tell us a little bit about the show that you're uh, staffed on now yeah absolutely so our writers room wrapped uh about a month ago so i've been out of it but it was um i think we we're it was like Five months, something like that. And for those who don't know, Twisted Metal was originally a Sony PlayStation game that came out in the mid-90s. And there were many sequels that came out of it. But the game itself, I mean, I don't know how to put this. It's just absolutely crazy. Literally, it's just <laughs> these vehicles in, in this crazy world where it's like demolition derby. Mm -hmm. and these vehicles would be like an ice cream truck or you know sweet tooth there'd be like a motorcycle guy and he would just like shoot weapons and he just go into this arena combat like uh apex legends whatever like sort of a free-for-all melee right but with mm -hmm. cars and so the show is not just a combat game i don't think i'm spoiling anything this is all public but you know it's um it's set really in the post-apocalypse and the story is about one man who needs to journey across a post-apocalyptic America to deliver a package. And it's, it's you know, obviously there's a lot of cars, there's a lot of combat, um, but there's a lot of heart in it. You know, it's a story in which Anthony Mackie is playing the lead character. Um, the other lead is Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And how I probably describe it is like probably Mad Max meets uh, the Fast and the Furious, right? In that sense. And so I'm super excited for people obviously to check it out when it does come out, but it's really just truly a crazy show. And like... You know, there's a ton of stunts and cars and explosions, like all of that blockbuster stuff you can get from cars, but grounded by these these really human characters that are trying to make stunts in this in this ravaged wasteland, you know, in America. I was gonna say it's it's like uh, Mad Max meets Mario Kart. 
but Fast and Furious <laughs> works as well. Uh, that too, yeah, yeah. Did you play uh, Twisted Metal growing up? I did, yeah. It was actually, uh, that was one of the things that I really connected with the show on was like when my family, when we moved to San Diego, I didn't really have any friends, but this one, really one of my first friends that I met was a neighborhood kid named Kendall and we would play Twisted Metal all the time at his house. I wasn't really much of a talker. It took me a while to open up, but video games really were a portal for me to connect with other kids. And Twisted Metal, we played Twisted Metal and Mario Kart. It was really those two games. So that game holds a special place in my heart because of what it meant to me emotionally at the time. And, and so I was very familiar with the world and loved the game. So getting this job, being able to craft a story set in this crazy universe was really... Um, what I'll say is I think 11-year-old Irving would be shitting his pants if he knew that like <laughs> later on, 31-year-old Irving would be working on a TV show based on a video game that helped him meet new friends as a kid. So that was really special to me to be on this show. That's a really lovely full circle moment of really just making your childhood dreams come true. So congratulations on that. Thank uh, you. I appreciate it. Anthony Mackie was announced on the cast. You're writing for a freaking Avenger Stephanie Beatrice, <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine, also the, the main uh, star of Encanto. Some other casting announcements recently, Thomas Hayden Church, yeah, uh, San, yeah. Sandman from the Spider-Man yeah. movies. <laughs> he's going to be awesome <laughs> in that role, yeah. Uh, Will Arnett, Nev Campbell. Uh, one that I was personally excited about is Mike Mitchell, who hosts yeah. one of my favorite podcasts, Doughboys, uh, was announced on the cat. cast. So I'm personally so excited for this project to come together and, and for your involvement in it. I do want to ask, tech startup or writer's room, which workplace environment is more intolerable? I'm just kidding. Um, are, there, <laughs> uh, are there any similarities or, or things that you were able to kind of uh, bring over from your tech career that helps you navigate this new industry? Yeah. So at least uh, at a startup, you know, it's that old aphorism, you know, you really get to know people as if they're family. And I think that's very true in a writer's room. You really get to know people. I think especially in a startup, it's absolutely required to build up an immediate trust because it's so hard and you're seeing and working with them all the time. So just having that trust, having that sort of that emotional foundation between all the different people is really important. And so I felt knowing that was probably also required in the writer's room, I think going into it and just being ready to open up, I felt that that was a nice transfer of sort of that experience. I think what was different that I didn't quite expect, but I sort of got the hang of was in a writer's room, because these stories, you're dealing with fundamentally these characters, and there's a lot of emotion with these characters. A lot of writers bring in their own personal lives into these stories. Throughout the room, various people refer to very personal stories from their life that sparked an idea in the story that we ended up using. And I guess I wasn't quite ready for that. I think in the tech startup, we didn't really do that. But at least in the writer's room, being prepared to do that was something I had to learn uh, really mm -hmm. fast. And sometimes I just wasn't ready to share a story, even if I felt like it pertained to, to it could help the story. And I think just getting around that, it was like, it was, it's just really being an emotionally engaged participant in the writer's room. And I was like, okay, here's what I need to do. So I think that was a bit hard. I didn't quite get that in, in my old career. But that was definitely one of the biggest new skills I had to learn uh, pretty quickly in the writer's room. You're just getting started in this new career. You wrapped up your first show. I know it's you know very early in this new industry, but do you have a uh, a dream project formulating in the back of your mind yet, or any any uh, inklings mm. of ideas that you want to tackle? Yeah, 
feel like there's so many different ways to like shade an answer to that because similar to what we were talking about earlier, Evan, is remembering on a daily basis, hopefully, why I'm doing this, like why I'm telling, trying to tell stories. And I think whether that manifests as a TV show or a book or a graphic novel or anything that involves a, a medium in which I'm really passionate about, I think just being able to do it on a daily basis, like that I get to do it really is, is the dream for me. And I don't ever want to lose sight of that. And I know I, I sound like a broken record saying it, to be honest, but I think it's because I don't know really anything about this industry, but I, what I feel like I do know is that it is incredibly uncertain and that things come and go. And there's just a lot of things out of a person's control. And I think trying to divorce my emotional health from the outcome of whatever happens, I realized that needed to be a priority in my life. And so how I've, I guess, shifted in terms of like thinking about dream projects, which I'm, I think in terms of the ideas that I would have for some shows or some books, I would love to be able to do that in my life. But I think it's just remembering on a daily basis that like I get to wake up and do this now, which is just crazy that I get to do it now. Um, whether it's working my own stuff or doing someone else's show that I, I feel like I'm living that dream right now. Uh, I think it's unpaid uh, right now because, <laughs> you know, um, it can be tough at times, but, uh -huh. um, I think that's, that's what I'm trying to remember is that. So my book agent and I were hopefully about to go out in a little bit with a manuscript of short stories that I finished. Um, that I really enjoyed writing, and that was like it really came from a, a from a deep place in me. Uh, and I'm trying to learn how to, you know, write a graphic novel now. So just really trying to uh, just learn and to grow and to keep challenging myself in terms of the mediums out there, and to continue keeping the fire alive for storytelling is really where my heart and head are at right now. Do you have any advice for not necessarily even aspiring writers, whatever their pursuit is? Uh, do you have advice for people who are trying a new thing? Yeah, I think the thing, at least that I always try to think about is that everyone's life and everyone's context um, and where they are in their life is just so vastly different. It's really hard to find specific advice I work with people because, you know, we all come from very different backgrounds. But I think for me, the advice I wish someone told me early on was like, it's a, it's a long road. It really is. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really uncertain. And so it's important to ask yourself why you're doing this. And if it feels like it's a reason that you wake up day in and day out that you can't shake off of your soul, that it just clings onto and, and it feels true, then do it. But if it smells like you're doing it for a reason that doesn't feel honest to you, doesn't speak to you in a way that's not in the head, but in the heart, if it doesn't speak to that, you know, that true place inside you i think it's important to ask yourself why like i wouldn't say don't do it but i think because it's such a long road it's important to ask yourself why now i think it depends on like whether you want to pursue it as your career or if it's a hobby i think for a hobby like probably it doesn't even matter but if people are trying to pursue it as a career when commerce gets involved i think that's where it gets tricky so i think at the end of the day when commerce is tough which it can be you know especially in this industry that pie in the sky reason is what i i think personally is what can help people survive in the in the downtimes. So I guess my advice is don't give up because if you feel like you want to go into it, that is in of itself a special reason to sustain and to keep alive. That's a feeling that is really personal to you and no one can take that away at the end of the day. No one can take away that voice. So and trusting your own voice because you have something to say 
you have something that you want to share with the world, it deserves to be shared. So don't give up, but know that it, it can be a long road and it may take a while to find your voice, but you will find it if you keep at it. You know, even if it's just spending 10 to 15 minutes a day, which is really what I did initially. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have much time. I was working a busy job. Even if I could just carve out 20 minutes in the morning, that's all I did. And I felt like just that daily, just that daily little practice really helped. Irving, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today on this podcast. This has personally been so motivating. You talk about creativity so eloquently. I wish you all the success in the world. Can you let our listeners know where we can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's very, very sweet of you, Evan. And very much likewise. It was, I really enjoyed your questions. They're incredibly insightful. Um, but yeah, my, uh, I'm not active much on social media these days, but I guess you can just find me um, on Irving Ron, my full name, last name on, on Twitter and Instagram. And then uh, at my website, just my name.com. But yeah, I mean, always available if people want to reach out through email, whatever, more than happy to, to chat. Um, yeah, an open book. And I really appreciate you having me. This has been a real, real treat. And I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Someday List. We'll have new episodes for you every month, so make sure to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or follow along on social media at to do app on Instagram or at to do on Twitter. This podcast is produced by To Do. Our theme music is composed by Evan Laybourne. I want to thank our guest Irving Ruan again. The series Twisted Metal comes out later this year on Peacock. And of course, thank you, the listener. We'll catch you next time.